Impact of Influence, The Murdoch Family Murders. This is the unfolding story of a powerful South Carolina family, the mysterious deaths they are linked to, and our quest to bring you the truth. Hello, friend, and we are again so grateful that you are joining us, Matt Harris and Seton Tucker. You can find us Murdoch Podcast on Facebook, MurdochPodcast.com, or write to me at Matt Harris Podcast at gmail.com. Start us off, Seton. We have a very exciting guest that we will be introducing in a minute, but I want to set up why we are having him on. The attorneys representing Russell Lafitte, who is the disgraced banker from Hampton, have filed a motion to dismiss the superseding indictments issued by the grand jury, which apparently had some errors in it. The government made some edits to the information that they presented to the grand jury. And one of the things that they mixed up were the terms conservator and PR. And Russell's attorneys have issued a response. And in their response, they say, if the government is going to hold Mr. Lafitte accountable for knowing the intricacies of the South Carolina private code, the court should hold the government to the same standards. And Lafitte, meanwhile, has a trial date set for November 8th in federal court in Charleston. And it just reminds you a little bit, he's accused of helping out Alec Murdoch in a decade-long crime spree. And uh, the federal charges appeared uh, in mid-September. The eight charges included more counts of bank fraud, wire fraud, conspiracy to commit wire fraud and bank fraud, and misapplication of bank funds. So the South Carolina probate system has been very confusing to me, and I think it would be from others. So I think that having a probate judge in South Carolina would really help us and our listeners understand the system more. And so Judge Jesse S. Cartrett Jr. has volunteered to come on, and we really appreciate that. Judge Cartrett was a member of the first graduating class of the Charleston School of Law, Charleston Law, where he was a founding member of the Christian Legal Society and served as one of the first class of justices seated in the law school's student-led court, formerly known as the Honor Council. Judge Cartrett was awarded the Civility Award, Charleston Law's highest honor, by election of his peers, and he received that just before receiving his Juris Doctor degree from the Charleston School of Law in 07. In his legal career, Judge Cartrett became an accomplished and respected attorney, mediator, and guardian ad litem in the probate, circuit, and family courts of Florence and the surrounding PD area counties. He's also served as an adjunct professor of business law for Limestone University. He's passionate about helping those in need in the community and frequently participates in various community service projects, promoting charitable organizations and engaging other philanthropic endeavors to benefit local artists, farmers, homeless and disadvantaged members of the community, disabled veterans, religious charities, and more. He was elected Florence County Probate Judge on November 6th, 2018. He's the Honorable Jesse S. Cartrett Jr. Hello, Judge. How are you today? I'm doing well, thanks. How are you? Great, great. Thanks for spending time with us. And we're so excited to have you on. And I think we should start with the basics. What is a probate judge? Well, a probate judge is the judge of, uh, there are 46 of us in South Carolina and each are publicly elected. The probate judge is the judge of what's called the probate court. 
which is a court that is based off of South Carolina law and the South Carolina Constitution. And um, in in many of the counties, the court itself predates the county um, in terms of age, uh, as it does in my county. Um, my county was founded in 1888, and we've had a probate court as long as we've had a county. Court uh, handles uh, matters involving estates and deaths, which is what most people think of when they think of probate. Uh, in addition to estates, most people uh, might not be aware, unless they've had a family member or relative go through it previously, that probate court is also the court in charge of guardianships and conservatorships. That's where someone has lost physical or mental capacity to take care of themselves, uh, either physically or financially, and they need someone to step in and do those things for them, but they're beyond the help of a durable power of attorney or a medical power of attorney or both. And so they need a guardian or a conservator appointed, someone who is trusted, a family member, close personal friend or confidant. If not that, then an agency an agent from an agency of some type that can be trusted to oversee their affairs. Um, and typically when I say agency, I don't mean like a public agency. I mean a private organization that handles these things professionally. We also do mental health court, which involves uh, any type of mental condition that is treated through our state mental health system and including those mental health cases that involve a drug and alcohol component. And so that's kind of a bifurcated mental health system, but we do have both wings of that under probate court. Probate court also handles any small uh, or what we call uh, minor settlements that are passed down to us from the circuit court, anything below $50,000 in, in value. And uh, we also handle settlements involving wrongful death. Asbestos claims come through for estates as well, which we have to look at and approve. Uh, we get gun petitions where people have had their Second Amendment rights suspended and have to have those restored or would like to have those restored. They petition my court for that or the probate court in any of the other 45 counties in South Carolina. And there is a host of particulars they have to go through in order to get that accomplished, and it involves the state attorney general's office as well. We also are the courts that issue the marriage licenses for anyone who's going to get married. Probate court has a lot of things on its plate that we do, and a lot of folks don't know they need probate court until they do, but almost some point in your life, you will need the probate court of your home county. Before we get into the nuts and bolts of conservators and PRs, let's go over what sort of training probate judges receive in the state of South Carolina. Well, in South Carolina, there is not a formal requirement for training other than our judicial continuing legal education requirement that are prepared for us by the South Carolina Bar and approved by the South Carolina Judicial Department. Then we have to receive a certain number of course hours, which over the years will go up depending on how much time they think that we need. At current, I believe each judge has to have 20 hours at a minimum of training per year. It's my understanding that probate judges in the state of South Carolina are not required to be lawyers. Is that correct? You are correct. Um, we have, over the decades, last few decades, tried to amend the statute to require, because our public wants probate judges to be lawyers, the overwhelming majority is stunned that probate judges do not have to be lawyers. 
especially when the high volume of litigation that comes through probate court really does require a legal mind to decipher through it and understand exactly what's being presented to the judge for decision. Probate court is a court where a jury can be asked for, but often is not in favor of a bench trial by the judge. And so when it comes down to that, most people would prefer that that judge have a legal degree and trial knowledge so that they could administer that case properly and then decide it. You know, when you get in a courtroom and you've got two or three or multiple lawyers who are in battle against each other trying to win the case, you need a judge who understands the law and and preferably who's got trial experience himself or herself prior to being on the bench who can referee those, those parties and their attorneys and hold them true to the rules of court and to ethical conduct and make sure that their arguments are based squarely on the law and that they don't try to get in evidence improvidently. I wonder, do most states require the probate judge to be an attorney? There's a split among the various jurisdictions, but I think South Carolina at this point is probably in the minority of states that does not yet require it. We have, as I said, attempted to make it a requirement, but because the southern states are under a mandate that the Justice Department reviews periodically, and whenever we make any kind of a a statutory change to the qualifications for judges or to election laws or redistricting, for instance, if it does not pass, pass muster with the Justice Department, so that the effect of that law, according to the Justice Department standards, would not somehow disproportionately affect minorities, it will be stricken down. And and they'll ask us to revisit and and redraft the statute. And each time South Carolina has attempted to change the qualifications for probate judges, they have had it stricken down. We've passed some pretty great legislation, and it's not prejudicial in its effect, especially if you see the ratio of how many minority lawyers we have in South Carolina now and how many minority law students we have graduating from school now in South Carolina, it's very hard for that argument to continue to hold up. In this whole Murdoch situation, we have a couple of people who are tied in. We have Russell Lafitte, who was the conservator for the Plyler girls who received a settlement after their mother and brother were killed in an automobile accident. And we also have Chad Westendorf, who served as the personal representative for Tony and Brian Satterfield. What is the difference between a personal representative and conservator, and when are they assigned? A personal representative is only appointed on an estate when someone dies. A conservator is appointed when someone needs another person who is responsible to take care of their financial needs or of their assets and administer them properly. So you would reach that point. With a child it receiving a settlement, if they if their parents are not deemed creditworthy and cannot get bonded to take care of a settlement they would receive, the and the answer to your question is if the child's parents cannot be bonded uh, by when we set a conservatorship in place, we want to name usually someone who's close of kin, and if it's a child, we want to go one of the parents, the mother or the father, to serve as the conservator in that case. When you're trying to figure out which one of the two is best to serve if both are living, then what you'd look at is the creditworthiness of that parent and whether or not they've got any kind of a criminal background. Combine those two elements to see, you know, and if if there's a criminal background, how remote in time is that 
background from the modern day is 20 years old and there's been no incident, we might not give it as much weight. And if the crimes are not financial in nature, but are of another type, then we might not weigh that as heavily as we would closer to when they occurred. Uh, and they might still be eligible to serve on behalf of their child. If it's a financial crime, uh, however, we always are going to look suspect at that and want to know if this person can get a bond. Um, we look at their credit report. If they have a low credit score or a history of not managing their own money well pursuant to that credit report's details, then we're going to want to make sure this person gets bonded because if, if they cannot get a bond, which is an insurance policy that protects the corpus or the entire sum of the child's settlement or trust or, or whatever funds they have, however they've got those funds set, we want to protect those as they go into a conservatorship account. We want that conservator to be fully insured so that whatever if they make a mistake or if they happen to make an intentional bad act with regard to the money, that the child is still protected, their assets are still secure, and uh, they they recoup any losses they have due to the mishandling of their funds. So that's why often it would be a, an attorney or a financial banker or something like that, I guess. And Chad Westendorf, who is still employed by a Palmetto State Bank, received forty grand for being the PR. And... I'm wondering, is, you know, he ended up not protecting the money, but how much are PRs and conservatives allowed to be paid in our state? Are there limits? Is it a percentage of the money? How does it work? It should always be based on how many hours they put in and uh, to be reasonable under the circumstances. We would look at the proposed fee they want to set. And if, you know, if, if we're talking about an attorney or an accountant, someone who charges by the billable hour, then we want them to prove the billable hours they put in before we would approve their fee. I mean, $40,000 seems high to me just as a layman, but I mean, I guess if there's a lot of money, maybe that's reasonable. Yeah, well, what we would look at is the value of the conservatorship that they are managing and just how active they had to be in managing it. Conservatorship where they were they were working on it day in and day out full time and billing tons of hours, legitimate hours, they could possibly make that kind of money. And it has to be approved yeah. too, right? I mean, it's not like he can just say, hey, give me 40 grand and you go, yes, yeah. so you, you look at oh, it. Oh, yeah, it has to be approved. We wouldn't just willy-nilly let them take $40,000 from someone's conservative. Right. Influencer. It's a word that gets tossed around a lot these days. There is a woman who went the distance, who broke ground as the first true influencer by living a remarkable life. Her name, Elizabeth Taylor. I'm Katy Perry. This is the story of the original influencer. This is Elizabeth the First. Elizabeth the First, the podcast, wherever you listen. Corey Fleming was the attorney representing the Satterfields. His law license has been suspended. He's been indicted on charges related to his representation of the Satterfields. It appears that the settlement was never filed. Now, how does the probate court get involved in settlements? How does that filing situation work? If it's a wrongful death settlement, it should come through the probate court. If not a wrongful death settlement, then is it a minor settlement, which is a settlement that the circuit court actually has jurisdiction over? If so, does it fall below the threshold that the circuit court could actually send it to us to decide it? If not, then the circuit court has to approve the settlement and then send that approved settlement to the probate court to create a conservatorship to protect the money. 
What was that threshold again? I believe it's $50,000. And this was above that? It was circuit court first. Circuit court first. But it was never filed. That's a mysterious question right there, I guess. It doesn't make sense to you on the surface what we told you, right? Well, it just depends on whether or not what, what kind of a settlement we're talking That's about. That's true. What was the action that was brought originally that was being settled? Wrongful death through probate court. If it's not wrongful death, it goes through circuit court. If it's a tortious settlement that's not wrongful death, it would go through the circuit court if it's above that threshold. If it's below okay. that threshold, the circuit court wave it down to the probate court to approve the settlement on top of issuing a guardianship. Do family members have access to their finances once a conservator is assigned? The answer to that question is the only family member that would have access to the funds would be a family member who is named as the conservator. And even then, if it's a minor's fund, that conservator cannot just spend the money without coming before the probate court and filing a request for an expenditure and, and having that, that expenditure approved first. My question for you is, can they look online and see where their money is being spent? I can't say they have access to look online because not all of the 46 counties have the exact same. Take a little break and uh, get you ready for some traveling you've got coming up, some international trip where you want to be able to at least get around, right? So you want to learn the language of the country that you're going to. You want to experience it with a little bit of knowledge going in. And you can get a lot of bit of knowledge when you use Rosetta Stone. It's the most trusted language learning program. It's available on desktop. It can also be used as an app on your phone or tablet. And Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion. It's instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals. You read stories. You participate in dialogues. So you are ready to go. It's the most trusted, time-tested app out there. They've been the expert in language learning for 30 years. Buy Rosetta Stone now and you never have to pay a renewal fee. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Impact of Influence listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 40% off. That's 40% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 40% off at rosettastone.com backslash today. System for that type of transparency. What I can say is, because each one of us has different levels of funding by our county government, which is the, the government that's responsible for providing for us our ability to get records online. You know, it, it just depends on how wealthy your county is and how important it is to your county government to help your probate court get those records online and make those accessible to the public online. But you can go to your public court and look up any record that is public record. Okay, Judge, when do probate judges review how the money is being spent? When, when you ask for a review, the review is done when we receive the petition for expenditure. We look at how much money is in the account. We look at how it's being handled by the conservator, whether or not they're being judicious, whether or not they're filing their reports properly and timely. That's usually how we scope whether or not to rule them in because they're making a request for funds. So have, have they then, in addition to their request for funds, made every reporting that they were supposed to make on time or within a reasonable grace period that we wouldn't have had to have brought them in on what's called a rule to show cause or a contempt action for not having done so properly. 
so we want to make sure that, that they are filing timely reports, uh, what we call inventories or accountings of, of the, you know, what's coming into the estate or the conservatorship account and what's going out of it. But what's going out of it should be controlled if it's a minor's conservatorship by the approval of the probate judge. Well, how do you think it's possible that the court did not catch any of this mishandling of money? I'm, I'm telling you how it's run in my court. I, I can't speak to the level of how it's being done in other probate courts. We, we strive for uniformity across the 46 counties. Some are better at doing it than others. I will not tell you that I'm the very best, but I strive for perfection if I can get it. Does the PR or the conservator have a bunch of checks they can just go write? Or do they go to the probate judge and say, I need a check for this much to pay for this? Let me tell you how it's done in most of our courts, generally. Once the conservatorship is approved, the conservator is then authorized to open what's called a conservatorship account in their name as conservator. Money is held. Therefore, once they need to make an expenditure and they get approval to make that expenditure, they can then write checks off of that account, that account in that amount. So they just can't just get a bunch of checks and write them out. They're, they don't have access to a checkbook. Really, they shouldn't. Okay. But I don't. It depends too on the cooperation level of the bank that you're working with, whether the bank issued them a checkbook or not. It just depends on the bank that they went and banked with. Some banks will say, okay, you've got a conservatorship account here. So what we'll do is when you need to make an expenditure, we'll just do cashier's checks once we receive the order from the judge approving the expenditure you want to make. Might not be as cautious and might just give them a business banking account that they call a conservatorship account and hand them a checkbook with a binder and say, here you go. Just don't write any of these checks until the judge tells you you can. Aha, therein lies the rub. It seems that a lot of these victims kind of come from a vulnerable population. We have Hakeem Pinckney, who was a deaf man who became quadriplegic as a result of an automobile accident. We have minors, just people that seem to be vulnerable in one way or another. What would you recommend doing to protect your loved ones? You cannot fully 100% protect against the wiles of persons with corrupt hearts and that's just a given. But the closest thing we can do is get the conservatorship account in place and get professionals who are highly reputable. CPAs, accountants um, are, typically are the best for this. Lawyers can do it too. But you want people that, that are of high reputation and, and ability when you're going to have to go outside of your family to get a conservator to handle the finances. You, you just vet the people very carefully. You make sure they're bonded. You do not get a conservatorship without a true bond on it. A lot of times you'll get CPAs and attorneys that will come before the court and say, well, you know, I've got my, my professional bond on file with the court. And I always tell them, I'm happy to accept your professional bond on file with the court. But in the event you make a mistake with this estate or you know, in this turn, in this situation, we're talking about a conservatorship. In the event you make a mistake with this conservatorship, I'm going to hold you fully responsible up to the full value of your professional bond. So, you know, if you put it out there, I want a copy of your bond on file for this particular case, not just a blanket on file bond. Alec Murdoch has been charged with murdering his son, Paul, and his wife, Maggie. If he is found guilty of murdering his wife and child, how will that affect his probate? 
Well, under the Slayer statute, he would not be allowed to inherit from either of their estates uh, should he be found guilty of having murdered them. Uh, It prevents the inheritance from someone whose death you caused. Let's talk about the Moselle property. It is owned under Maggie's estate, and it was sold to her by Alex for $5 plus love and affection. Is that proper? First of all, you can absolutely transfer any property that is in your name to any family member for $5 plus love and affection. That's the way it's been done historically for generations in South Carolina and other jurisdictions as well. It's what we call a family transfer. As long as the property is paid off and there's no liens or encumbrances, no mortgages on it that have to still be satisfied, you can transfer it for $5 plus love and affection because it's yours free and clear to do that with. And then it becomes the property of whomever you transferred it to for the $5. But we have to put some degree of value on that deed in order for, uh, other than just the love and affection, you could even go as low as $1 plus love and affection or one penny if you wanted to. There has to be something of value exchanged to make the transfer happen. And so that's why we do it that way. Currently, the Moselle property is under contract to be purchased by an adjacent farm. It appears as if what happens to the property is in limbo. We know that there have been co-receivers appointed to oversee Ellick's finances. So my question for you is, can the property be sold if it's under a receivership? The receivership was set up as a judicial creation to make sure the property does not transfer without court oversight. And so I would say it, it can transfer, but it won't happen without a court's approval or shouldn't happen without a court's approval. Have you encountered situations where conservators or PRs or lawyers have stolen uh, money from people you've seen in your courts? I like a particular example that I used from early on in my first term here on the bench. I had a PR of an estate who was elderly uh, herself and stole a little over $40,000 from an estate that she was the personal representative on, which would have amounted to her portion of what she would have inherited from that particular uh, relative. And the other heirs of the estate were due a similar amount, which she had not yet gotten to go through. Uh, but her portion plus what would have been her, if she'd have managed to get through the entire estate, uh, personal representative's fee up to that point. She assured the court when we found this anomaly that she could pay it all back, that she didn't put the money somewhere it was improper. I mean, if it had been spent improperly, I mean, it's clear at that point that she had. That's why we called her. You know, if she'd been spending it properly, we would have never asked her a question about where these expenditures are going and where's this money at, because there would have been plenty of proof that it was being spent properly for funeral expenses, for administration costs and various other things that would come up in an estate. And and those things were not indicated. Those things were not present in this. Um, It was clear she was spending it for other things. But in that particular case, the other parties involved, the other heirs, said, look, a lot of money is going out of the estate and it's going out fast and we need it to stop. They brought what was called a rule to show cause to have her brought in. And also in tandem with that rule to show cause, they filed an action to remove the personal representative and to replace that personal representative with another person from within the family. 
And so what happened was I did remove the personal representative. I put the personal representative in jail when it was clear the personal representative uh, had lied and could not produce the money that had been spent. And there is still a mandate to pay off those funds in order to be released from jail. Do you think what we're seeing in Hampton County is an isolated incident or is this happening in other places in our state? It can happen anywhere where the court is not being apprised as it should be of the information necessary to oversee things properly. Anything can slip through the cracks. I mean, it could happen in my court. It could happen in that county. It could happen in any of the 46 counties. So I I don't want to cast judgment on another judge's court. That's not what I'm participating in this for. But what I want people to understand is it's not necessarily the court that's causing it. It could be, but it is more likely that someone the court has entrusted to do a certain thing by way of appointment has breached their ethical duty and just has not yet been caught. In June of 2020, Randolph Murdoch created a will that gave all of his estate to a trust under his name, the Randolph Murdoch III Trust, the only beneficiary of his estate. Why would someone do a trust? Typically, folks prepare trusts to avoid probate and the expenses of probate and also to defer taxation. In in some instances, they're, and I'm not a tax lawyer, so I can't tell you based on what people would receive, how much they might pay out in terms of estate taxation and whatnot. So that's not a question I can answer for you in those terms. But in its most general sense, trusts are what we call legal fiction it, that have existed for more than 2,000 years. They're property transferring devices that are used to escape legal consequence, usually some form of taxation, and usually certain fees and costs of administration to do with probate, which would hold up the transfer of that property or the use and benefit of that property by the intended beneficiary of the trust. Are trust public records, can we get access and see what is in a trust? You can to the extent the trust is filed with the courts, which it should be filed with the courts. I will tell you probate court is the court with exclusive jurisdiction for modification of trusts and the creation of trusts. So uh, when when it comes to avoiding the transfer of assets by way of probate, Uh, you would see trust come up in in that regard through our courts. If Alec Murdoch is found financially responsible for any of the crimes or the Mallory Beach boating accident, will the victims be able to get access to money from a trust? Uh, The short answer to your question is yes. You cannot avoid liability for tortious or criminal conduct with a trust. If a court deems that there is liability that that one has for something they've done wrong or harm they've caused to another. The court can authorize that trust's fund to be used to settle that or to make the, the plaintiff parties as whole as they can be made. Very informative, Judge. Thank you very much. I, I'm glad to do to to participate. I would love it if I could uh, just uh, iterate for you guys. Uh, I'm up for re-election here in Florence County. Ah. Um, I'm running for my second term and would love it if any of your uh, listeners and supporters would 
if they like what they've heard and and want to know more about Florence County Probate Court and how it operates, or if they live in Florence County and haven't made up their mind about who they want to vote for, I sure would love to have their support on November 8th. Well, I will forward this on. My mother-in-law lives in Florence County at Methodist Manor, and we have a big contingent that listens to us at the Methodist Manor, and I will for sure make sure that they know about it. Thank you so much. Do you have a place where they can find you? A There are two locations you can find me at that I can readily recall for you, um, and that is our Florence County probate judge, Jesse Cartrett. That's Jesse with no I in it, J-E-S-S-E, and last name Cartrett, C-A-R-T-R-E-T-T-E. And if you'll go to votecartrett.com, you've got my website there that you can look at. And there's also a contribution link on there if you want to donate to the campaign. There's also uh, links on there for getting involved with the campaign to volunteer. And you can find out information about me and about what probate court does. Good luck, Judge. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Bye. All right. That's a hit an email I received about episode 68 from Kelly. She's mad up catching up on the Murdoch podcast and just to listen to number 68. I have a question regarding Maggie leaving her headlights on. Could there have been an accomplice with Alec when she arrived at Moselle and already suspicious, seeing two people in dim light? left the headlights on so she could see the other person. That would still put Alec at the crime scene and provide a second person who had the second gun. If you'd answered that question already in a subsequent podcast, I apologize for the distraction. It's not a distraction, even if we had talked about it, but we did not. No, I have not seen that theory pop up. I had not either. So Kelly, a new theory to throw out there. Also, she says, also, I have assumed that Alec changed his shirt after the shooting and before calling 911, Maybe authorities collected the clean shirt, realized it wasn't the right one, didn't Alex say he handled a body, and then searched days later to find the first shirt. By then, they may have had to confiscate all of his shirts for testing. Just a thought. Do not know about that. And she ends with, I've really enjoyed your balanced, non-dramatic podcast. Keep up the good work. Kelly. Thank you, Kelly. And you were on another podcast with some of our friends. So this week, I was asked to be on a podcast from two of my friends who are widows, and Dwayne is the producer of their podcast as well. They tackle tough topics on their podcast, but they do it in an interesting way, and it's not too heavy. And this week, I got to discuss with them what it's like to be a child who lost a parent. So it was really interesting. If you'd like a break from true crime, I would highly recommend their podcast, Dare to Live. They are a trip, those two. That is for sure. They are fun. <laughs> All right. Uh, Matt Harris Podcast at gmail.com. Murdoch Podcast on Facebook. MurdochPodcast.com. Yes, Seton. Yes. And if you want to go to our Facebook page, which is Murdoch Podcast, you can check out a video that I took this summer mm-hmm. of the creek that the boating accident occurred. That killed uh, Mallory Beach. Yes. Talk soon. Join Hala Taha for actionable advice from the brightest minds in the world on the Young and Profiting Podcast. Author and academic Arthur Brooks on what success isn't. The husband was confessing to his wife that he might as well be dead. And I'm thinking, whoa, what's wrong with this guy? I turn around to get a look and it turns out to be one of the most famous men in the world. The world tells you that if you are profiting, money, power, pleasure, fame, you're going to be happy. And that's a bogus formula. The Young and Profiting Podcast, wherever you listen. 
So when the scammer uses the hypnotic method of building rapport, then they create dysfunctional, delusional reality. That's how a scam begins, convincing the mark that it makes perfect sense to hand over their money to a con artist. The Scams and Cons podcast tells you how scams are run. You'll hear how people are convinced to buy fake art, buy machines that print money, or steal your house. I get a phone call from my wife, and she let me know that they had decided to move all our stuff out. I can no longer do anything about it except go through an eviction. And you'll hear it from the experts, people who run the cons. So we go to your bank, you go in and get 6,000 cash, give us each 3,000, we give you this. Uh You go home, and what you find out is cut up newspaper. It's fun to know how the trick is done, and that's what Scams and Cons is all about. Listen at scamsandcons.com or wherever fine podcasts are found. From DNA testing to the Dixie Mafia, Crime Capsule brings you new stories of true crime in American history. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Join us for exclusive interviews with authors from Arcadia Publishing, writing the hottest books on the most chilling stories of our country's past. You can find us wherever you get your favorite podcasts or on evergreenpodcasts.com. Crime Capsule. History so interesting, it's criminal.